Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to Sister Wives with Mary Jane Kay. Today, I'll be breaking down Sister Wives Season 2, Episode 7, entitled The Brown Family Decision. Before I get into the episode, I think we should go over something important and factual that we should keep in mind as viewers as Cody trumps up the storyline and drama of the looming threat of the investigation. I do want to point out that historically, polygamous families were broken up or separated or penalized with fines or jail time for living as their faith prescribes or in the polygamous lifestyle. It was a real threat, and in some cases, it still can be if there are other crimes and abuses going on. But unless other crimes are involved, they aren't typically going to break up a family these days from what I researched. To make a storyline and drama out of this, when you know it's not a real threat in your case, unless you are committing other crimes, makes a mockery of other families who do face threats and who were separated in the past. And it dismisses those who don't get the privilege of knowing their family won't be broken up. But that's just my opinion. In the Browns case, the Utah Attorney General assured the Browns publicly that they wouldn't be prosecuted by the state of Utah unless the Browns were committing other crimes. Unless there was evidence of a victim or fraud, they weren't going to file charges, not on the county or state level as far as polygamy goes, unless other crimes were being committed. The AG made that clear when they opened the investigation. They closed the case without ever filing charges. They only opened the investigation after the show aired. Cody knew this before the move, and so did the wife. They'd had the policy that if the people practicing polygamy were consenting adults, they wouldn't bring charges for living polygamy unless there were additional crimes going on. So unless Cody was committing additional crimes, he had nothing to fear in his case. He had the luxury from the AG of knowing he wouldn't be charged unless other things were going on. And so either he drummed up ratings for drama and he made a mockery of the suffering of families who endured separation and real threats and legal consequences, or Cody was committing other crimes. I'd go with the first option, but that's just my opinion, allegedly. Keep in mind that if law enforcement didn't investigate someone openly breaking a law, as a formality with it flaunted on a TV show, the Browns would look like they received preferential treatment. So they had to do their job and investigate as a formality or the law enforcement would look like they weren't doing their job. Cody knew he was never in any real threat and he used this threat to stir emotions and drum up drama and create a storyline. And I know he wanted to decriminalize his lifestyle and he did and he advocated for it. But having the privilege of knowing you aren't under any threat and using the non-existing threat to create drama and outrage knowing you aren't under threat kind of makes a mockery of other families suffering who did face a threat in the past. That's just my opinion. I just want to quote the Attorney General's statement. This is the Attorney General's statement on the U.S. 10th Circuit Court of Appeals dismissal of Brown versus Booman. And this is straight from the AG. He said, similar to our own office policy, Utah County only prosecutes bigamy crimes against those who induce marriage under false pretenses or if there is a collateral malfeasance such as fraud, domestic abuse, child abuse, 
sex abuse or other abuse. The AG also said, we want them to come out of any shadows to report crimes, avoid abuse, and continue to live peaceful and productive lives. We have worked with them in the past to those ends, and we have not used our scarce resources to prosecute them unless there is evidence of violence, fraud, or corruption. The AG also announced this when he discussed opening the investigation in the media, so Cody knew unless he was hiding under a rock somewhere, and if he didn't see the media clip or the media coverage, I'm sure one of his four wives or 17 kids did and let him know. So keep all this in mind, please, as we get into all the drama and talk of the threat and the investigation on the show. The move in investigation and threat will be a major plot point in the narrative for a long while, so I think it's important to look at the reality versus the drama for the show. Okay, let's get into the episode, Season 2, Episode 7, The Brown Family Decision. The episode opens with the Brown kids making snow angels. It's Christmas season for the Brown family, and the family is going to a remote cabin that is so far up the mountains that there is no cell service says one of the things about getting away to the cabin now is they just recently had someone forward them an article from an online magazine where the county prosecutor is quoted as saying the Browns have definitely made it easier for us by admitting the felonies on national television. That was not the AG. That was the deputy county attorney general for Utah County that said that. All she did was state the obvious, that since the Browns are publicizing doing something illegal on TV, it's very easy for law enforcement to see it. The Browns have put attention on themselves by being on this TV show, so it's not surprising. The deputy attorney general for Utah County said they can expect a decision in 60 to 90 days. Keep in mind, the AG for the state made it clear what the policy was and that unless there were other crimes in addition to polygamy, there wouldn't be charges. And Utah County followed the state's lead and decision due to that policy. The Browns knew this, so basically this is the Deputy Attorney General for Utah County, not the State Attorney General, saying they made it easier being on TV and they will get the results of the investigation in 60 to 90 days. That's nothing threatening. They just stated the obvious. And the AG for the state already made clear there would be no charges for the lifestyle as long as there were not other crimes being committed. Janelle says everyone in their community was scared. And so they were given the time frame of 60 to 90 days, whatever that means. Cody says his chest starts to jest. His eyes dilate. He's feeling all kinds of intense You know, what can you do when you're just this small little peon against Goliath? Cody says there's a huge question about what to do. As they play ominous background music to drum it up even more, Cody says the responsibility falls usually on the leader. And fortunately, he's got four other sets of shoulders to share it with, but they've got to decide what to do. It's Christmas season with a lot of extra stress, Cody says. The camera does a close-up of tree ornaments. One says believe, and there is a very late 80s to mid-90s ornament on that tree with a photo of a young Cody and Mary on it. Mary has the bangs and the big hair going on. Her hair looks fabulous. Janelle says she knows they are getting away from it all, but there's a lot of prep because they have to take everything with them. She says we need to take our, and Robin, as usual, cuts Janelle off, and she lists clothes, tree, And Janelle is trying to speak. She says, presents, food. 
Janelle says they're shopping for the army, you know. They have to take it with them. Cody hopes the cabin helps them check out from all of this. Janelle wants the kids to be out of the normal environment. And Mary says in the next week or so, they've got some big decisions they've got to make as a family. And Cody admits, very big. Mariah and Mary climb on the roof to do lights and Christmas decor. Mary says, you know, this is a job that she's always done and occasionally the boys will help her with it if they're around. But she likes having the lights on the house, so she does it. She says, guys are supposed to do it, but they don't. She starts saying, but you know what? And Mariah interrupts Mary. She tells her, that is so sexist. Girls can do anything a boy can do. And I have to agree with Mariah. Mary likes being up on the roof. Mariah lets Mary know they need an outlet to reach. Christine says, what we don't know is every year there's a gap somewhere in the roof lights that Mary strings up so painstakingly. She says Mary will say that won't do and she will go rehang it if she doesn't like it and it's not perfect. Mary likes things done just right. She seems to be a perfectionist. We know the way Janelle did house chores when she and Cody first married was not up to par with Mary, and that would create issues between Janelle and Mary. And Mary didn't want the kids going through her apartment in the big house, instead preferring them to bundle up in the middle of winter to go up and down stairs and around from the outside to access Christine's apartment so as not to mess up her carpet or white couch. I wonder how much that striving for perfection and liking things just right affects Mary's relationships with her sister wives, even to this day. I know Janelle and Mary try now, and they do therapy sometimes, maybe just for the show. I wonder what the dynamic is like between them today, especially with Christine gone, if there even is much of a sister-wife relationship at all, other than a few family events here and there. Mary says, once the lights were up, there was a blank spot that appeared and Janelle says the roof got really icy and Mary says the weather got really bad and she can't do it when the weather is bad. It scares her to get on a slippery roof. Christine thanks her for not doing it. She says that was actually a good thing. The family is gathered in the living room of Janelle's section of the big house. The brown kids are picking names out of a bowl, determining who gets whom Christmas gifts. And Logan gets Aurora, Dayton gets Peyton, Mariah gets Savannah, Gabe gets Madison, Maddie gets Brianna. Cody explains that the kids draw names for each other because this way each child can get another child in the family a good gift and you are getting a more quality gift this way. Garrison says, you know the good thing about having four moms? Four extra presents. Mary tells Garrison he is a smart kid and he responds, yeah, I know. Cody says, with this big a family, Christmas morning, you can be opening presents for a very, 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 very long time. Robin says he runs out of his patience. Cody says they have had Christmases where they stop opening presents to have lunch. The wives and some of the brown kids all head to the Christmas tree lot. Mary says the tree lot was actually called the Christmas tree lot. And Matt, who owns the place, was so helpful and so friendly. Matt asks, what's more important, a tree that lasts long or a tree that smells really good? He asks, you want me to show you a couple of the smells? The first tree is everyone's favorite smell, a grand fir tree. He says, you can put this tree on the other side of the house, down in the closet, and if you open up the door, you're going to smell this tree. 
Mary says Cody would like that tree. He likes smelly trees. Matt reminds the wives to take the kids over to go see Rudolph. Mary says Rudolph is this reindeer they brought from Alaska. Santa asks, what makes reindeer fly? And one of the brown kids says they're antlers. Santa says it's belief and Christmas Eve. I love all things Christmas, but I have to say I've always found Santa to be creepy. When I was a little kid, the first time my mom took me to see Santa, I cried and cried and I refused to sit in his lap. Santa always has given me really bad vibes. And I never, ever believed the whole Santa shtick that he would bring presents down the chimney or leaving cookies and milk. I was always very skeptical. I knew it was BS. I'm not necessarily a conspiracy theorist, but I will say Satan and Santa is just a letter in a different place. And I'm not a fan of consumerism and I'm not big on major holidays. I may have always been skeeved out by Santa, but I do like the warm vibes and the Christmas vibes and all that stuff. I love the lights and the festivities and the Hallmark card Christmassy vibes. There's something about that that I really like that's heartwarming to me. Mary says they wanted to get a green tree. There were pink trees and red trees and flock trees and purple trees. Mary tried for the pink flock tree, but Christine wasn't having it. Mary says they were cool. You have to admit it. And Christine is adamantly shaking her head no, feigning outrage during this confessional scene. Mary asks Matt if he wants to know what she is really excited about. She asks Matt, do they have mistletoe? According to Mary, per last tell-all episode, Cody stopped the intimacy, as they put it, 10 years ago at least. This episode aired May 8th, 2011, so that would be 11 or 12 years ago if it was filmed prior to that, obviously. I wonder if Mary thought Mistletoe might bring back that loving feeling for Cody. Matt tells Mary they ran out of Mistletoe, and she sighs in frustration and jumps in the air animatedly in disappointment. Mariah is so embarrassed behind her, she glares at her mom, and she goes, Mom! Then she exclaims embarrassingly, she's jumping, very annoyed and very embarrassed by her mom's behavior. I think Mary has a crush on Matt, so she's being extra animated today, and Mariah senses her mom might act a fool, and she's embarrassed, cringing on the inside, hoping her mom reigns it in. If this guy was the catfish, Mary wouldn't be with Cody and the family today. Her personality changes around a man she's attracted to. She starts talking and being expressive and animated and drawing attention to herself. It's interesting to watch. Because Cody was her first love and she was just 18 and a self-admitted wallflower, I wonder if now in her late 30s with Matt, she's kind of acting like a teen with a crush because she doesn't have all that experience in the dating or romance field. So if she has a slight crush, she automatically maybe reverts back to the teenage stages in her mind. I don't know. It's just an opinion from the observation of this interaction with Matt. She is smiling so huge with Matt the way a five-year-old plays with a Ken doll. It's so weird. Matt promises they will pull the rock back and try to find Mary some mistletoe. Even if it's just a teeny tiny piece of it, they are going to find her some. Mary is blushing and smiling so big. I've never seen her smile like this. She is all aglow. I have never seen her like this, honestly. This man is selling. He's a salesman and just a little bit of attention has her acting like a schoolgirl, blushing, smiling, giggling, being animated. Mariah is glaring watching this interaction as her mom is smitten with Matt. 
In confessional, Christine says, Matt was cute and Janelle and Mary agree. Robin is smirking, shaking her head no. See, Robin knows Matt is a salesman selling. She isn't fooled by Matt's charm. Christine says he was cute and she didn't mind flirting with him. Robin is rolling her eyes, arms crossed, not agreeing during this confessional scene. Matt gave Mary and Christine pieces of mistletoe and Mary shrieks. We got our own mistletoe and she's smelling it and giggling and smiling, turning red like she's in junior high and her crush walks by her locker. It's so bizarre watching middle-aged women act like this. How immature these women are and how they revert back to giggly teenagers at the ages they are around a guy who is just being charming to sell and he knows he's being filmed. He was cute, but not cute to where I'd lose control and giggle and not know how to act. It was so odd. Mary says Matt was fun to flirt with. Dean says he was an innocent and fun person to flirt with. And Robin says these two are flirts. And she points to Christine and Mary dismissively. Matt tells the ladies they have some kissing balls left. He asks, did you see the kissing balls? See, his job is to sell, sell, sell. He's not flirting for fun or because he wants to or means it. He's flirting to sell. I used to work at Macy's for a short time long ago when I was like 18 in the suit section and I was young and I was pretty and I'd make commission. So men would come in and of course I would smile and flirt and talk. Would I ever be interested? No. Would I ever want to know these guys on a personal level? No. But I made commission. Christine says it's innocent flirting and that's why it's okay. Matt shows them the kissing balls and he says if you have the mistletoe and the kissing ball and Mary is holding this kissing ball, he's selling her hard with the sprig of mistletoe he gave her and she has it in hand to purchase. And she says with the mistletoe and the kissing ball, she gets extra kisses. Mariah looks horrified and Matt looks to camera like, I just sold her hard. Great success. Mary says in confessional, he was flirting right back with us. Christine says, I know. And they are all blushing and giggly during the confessional scene, just talking about this experience a time after it took place. It shows how naive these women are and how little street smarts they actually have. Matt knows he's cute and he wants to sell and these women think he's actually flirting back with them. He's not flirting. He doesn't mean it. He's not at all into them at all. He's selling them the kissing ball and the more expensive tree that smells better than the cheaper one. He's an excellent salesman and the women are giggling and laughing on this confessional couch, feeling like he flirted back. It was fun. They've got game. They're all big smiles, laughing giddy over this, particularly Mary and Christine. Christine is wearing a tomato red colored top and she is as red as her top discussing Matt. It's so weird how they act like junior high girls in middle school with infatuations. Wow. Matt gets their tree and he spins it around, showing it off. And Christine says, that's the one. And Mary tells Matt, you know what sold us on this? The tree spin. She's eating out of the palm of Matt's hand. And Matt can sell Mary an igloo in Alaska or ice to the Eskimos. All because he has a good looking face. Smart, he's using it to sell. Mary asks Matt if he can spin the tree again and Christine seconds that. He does it again and both Mary and Christine agree that's the tree for them, the one. As they're leaving, trees strewn up on the roof of that suburban, 50 kissing balls packed in the back. Mary thanks Matt very much and she goes in for a hug that she initiates. It's so bizarre. Who hugs their Christmas tree salesman? Christine says women that go there will leave with the tree. She's just saying. 
Christine says this year for Christmas, the family is going to a cabin and celebrating the holiday there for a lot of reasons. She says there's a lot of stresses right now that they have with going public, for example. And she says Cody is frantic and stressed out and all over the place. And there's a lot more added stress, it seems like, with the investigation. Janelle says they're meshing the families together and they're trying to figure out their traditions and how everything works together. Robin says Mary, Janelle, and Christine have these traditions in the family and she really wanted to bring something to the table as far as Christmas was concerned and have it be something that would mean something to the children as well. Robin took a worksheet that has all the little symbols from Christmas and she made little miniatures of all the little symbols of Christmas in tiny paper and she put them in clear round ornaments on a bed of glitter and iridescent sparkly gravel like little tiny candy canes cut out of paper and wreaths on a bed of this gravel stuff in this glass ornament or plastic clear see-through ornament. It looks like a fifth grade arts and crafts project one would do at school in my opinion. Robin says like there was a candy cane and it symbolized Christ kind of pulling them in as the shepherd and for her it kind of went back to the roots of what Christmas is all about. Robin loves ornaments, so she was trying to figure out a way to give an ornament to the kids every year. So she thought if she made it, then she could afford it, and then it's also a little bit more personal, too. Robin says someday when they're an adult or something, they'll pull out this ornament and have a memory of that she loves them, and that that Christmas was special. They show her tying ribbons on the ornaments, which she wrote on in marker. Very sloppily, I might add, it says the true meaning of Christmas, and a sloppily drawn heart with wings, and each kid's name sloppily written, barely legible. So I looked at the worksheet more closely, and here is what it says. It says, Christ whispered, teach the children the true meaning of Christmas at the top. Red is the first item on the list, and red is the first color of Christmas, symbolizing the Savior's sacrifice for all. The star is next, and it's a heavenly sign of prophecy fulfilled long ages ago, the shining hope of mankind. The fir tree is next on the list, and it's explained as evergreen, the second color of Christmas, shows everlasting life, and the needles point heavenward. Next is the bell. The worksheet says the bell rings out to guide lost sheep back to the fold, signifying all are precious in the eyes of the Lord. The candle is next, a mirror of starlight reflecting our thanks for the star of Bethlehem. The gift bow is next. The sheet says, it's tied as we should all be tied together in the bonds of goodwill forever. The candy cane is next. The shepherd's crook used to bring lambs back into the fold, a reminder that we are all our brother's keeper. And lastly, the wreath, a symbol of the never-ending eternal nature of love, marking our beginning and our end. I was curious to see what the worksheet said, so I paused it, and I don't think this was filmed in HD. It was super grainy. I spent way too long figuring out what it said, even the blurry bits. The kids are playing in the snow. I lived in places where it snowed until I was about 15, and I used to love snow days, and I loved playing in the snow, and I still do now. Then on the rare occasions that I do see snow, I get really happy inside and excited and I just have to play in the snow. I don't care how old I am. I'm going to be 80 playing in the snow if I see it. When I'm around snow, I just want to play in it. 
episode made me wish that there was snow where I live. Like, I want to make a snowman and snow angels. I love snow. The smell, the way the air feels on your skin when it's about to snow. So this makes me want to build a snowman at the end of May in a place where it never snows. Janelle says she has a traditional Christmas breakfast that she does, but for her, it's really just about hanging out with the family. Christine has brought into the family the tradition of St. Lucia's Day, where the oldest girls of the family make breakfast. So Maddie, Aspen, Mariah, and Robin adds, and Aurora, she mentions Aurora, is so excited to be a part of this older, oldest daughter club. They do a close-up of Mary's ornaments, and a lot of them involve family photos that are on the ornaments. Mary reveals every year she makes the kids pajamas for Christmas, and she gives them to the kids on Christmas Eve. And so she got most of them done, but she needs to finish up the rest. And Mary is wearing a very interesting outfit in this scene. She has a short-sleeved top on over a long-sleeved black shirt for modesty, of course, The shirt she has on over the long sleeve shirt is a normal top. It's not immodest. There are little half sleeves. It's not low cut. It's very loose, but I'm sure it's also cold in the middle of winter in Utah. There is snow on the ground. I just think it's a very interesting fashion choice. Mary is sewing pajamas in her Americana themed crafting room. There's American flag pillows and a day bed with an American themed quilt and pictures of American flags and kitschy American flag items flags framed on the walls, all kinds of flag stuff. Mary is showing her patriotic spirit in that craft room, complete with stars and stripes, curtains too. She says when the kids were little, she started this tradition and it has just stuck. Mary says she was sitting at her sewing machine in her Americana-themed craft room and it happens to look out the side, right in front of the window, and a police officer pulled into her driveway, and she immediately got on the phone to Cody. She started shaking, thinking, what in the heck is going on? Already this is happening? And it really scared her, and then the cop car slowly backed out of her driveway and slowly went down the road, and she went out to get the mail and to see where the cop car was, and he was down helping somebody whose car had slid into a ditch, and the cop was just turning around to help that person. But here Mary is, wondering every time she sees a police officer, what's happening now? Cody says he's seeing this fear build up, and he's going, what do I do with this? How do I protect my family from it? How do I not have this fear lead to some real problems and it's a huge burden on the family and it's a huge burden on him. He says he has to get something figured out. He needs answers that relieve the pressure. Cody doesn't know what to do, he says. Christine says one of the reasons why they're afraid is because looking at history, her dad was raised in a family where the police came in the middle of the night and they took her grandpa and her grandma's And the moms and her grandpa were put in jail for polygamy and all the wives had to separate and no one wife knew where another wife lived. They lost their best friends. They lost their contacts. They lost everything. And there's no way any of them want that life for their kids or for each other. Cody says their only frame of reference is actually historical. And that is that when they prosecute a family for polygamy, they break up the family. Again, The AG already made clear the policy was not to charge them for polygamy at all unless other crimes were committed. So Cody knew even though this happened historically decades ago, it wasn't policy to do it then and it wasn't going to happen to him that his family would be broken up. It was made clear to him that unless he commits other crimes, 
per the attorney general. They would not prosecute or bring charges. But because it was so open and in their face on TV and it's something illegal, obviously they're going to have to open an investigation or they, law enforcement will look like they are not doing their job. Cody has the privilege of knowing he will not face consequences. And he is, in my view, kind of being disrespectful and discounting the suffering of other families who did actually face separation and jail and fines, knowing he can flaunt being a polygamist on TV. And unless he's doing other stuff, he won't face a single charge. And it's all for cameras, more or less, to stir emotions in viewers for and for ratings. And because he wanted decriminalization, which he got in the state of Utah, and he refuses to return to the state of Utah. And it kind of makes a mockery of what other families had to go through in the past when you have the privilege to flaunt it in everyone's faces and know already there is no threat bringing up the history as if that's what the Browns also faced too, when they really didn't per the AG of Utah at the time. The wives were packing and getting ready to head to the cabin in the middle of nowhere. Mary says it's almost 10 o'clock and they're supposed to be leaving now, headed to the mountains and the cabin to have their brown family Christmas. And Christine adds to reconnect as a family unit. And Mary adds without any outside influences and Christine asserts nothing. Mary says they just want to go up to this cabin and get away. Christine says they need to get going on the day. They have a lot to do. They have to pack the entire planet to go on this trip, she says. Robin says it's food for everybody for these days, clothes for everybody. She herself had seven bags of presents. Cody says there's the Christmas presents. Robin says there's the Christmas tree and decorations. Cody adds there's the winter clothes. And Christine says they still have to load up the cars. And Robin says, and... Somehow, they're going to squeeze the kids in between the luggage and the stuff. Christine says they had a plan, but they're always hours behind the plan. Robin gets to the big house late, and she says she is here. That's all that matters. And bundled up Dayton falls to the ground. He's so cold. Cody says the teenagers all want to go. They're all really excited about it. And Janelle says that's true. But that is juxtaposed against the cameras asking the teenagers if they want to go on this trip. McKelty is doing something on her laptop and she looks frazzled. She sighs and says she thinks they should stay at home for Christmas. Maddie says just four days going nowhere and she sighs and she's shaking her head no and she says she wants her family to jest and then she says after a while you just want to rip your hair out. Hunter, who looks to be ripping up boxes with his bare hands and a small exacto knife, says he thinks going up to the cabin will be fun but cold. Cody says at the last minute it started getting panicky. They really actually... The stress got high, he says. They got maybe not nuts, but it was getting scary. Mary says there was some high stress going on and Cody says really high stress. Cody asks Christine if she looked into Robin's van He asks, like, how much room is there? And where is Janelle, he asks. Christine doesn't know where Janelle is, but she says she can try and read both of their minds if you'd like. She puts her hand to her brain like a psychic would and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, as if she's trying to get a vision. And Cody tells Christine, don't read their minds. Christine says she's not getting any kind of clear signal. Cody thanks her cynically and she says, you're welcome. And Cody says, yeah, you've been helpful. Read their minds. He wishes she would just learn to read their minds because he doesn't like her right now. 
Christine says, oh my gosh, she's not taking that personal. Cody is looking for something. He's super stressed. Mary says Cody is under a lot of high-level stress right now with the situation that's going on, and it's probably something Cody thought he would never have to deal with. Robin says Cody doesn't have the luxury of falling apart. She says he's like the captain of the ship, you know, and a captain of the ship never, never gets to say there's a storm coming, we're all going to die, they all have to be strong. That's interesting that Robin refers to Cody as captain here because during the scene in Polygamous Hell, season 15, episode 10, when Cody says his family is an obstacle to his goals in life, not just his wives, but his whole family, Robin says what scares her when Cody talks like that and it makes her feel very alone, but his attitude is that all of his wives are all making their own decisions and they are all very independent. They don't want to listen to him and they don't want to work as a team anymore. So that frees him of the responsibility of being captain and rallying the troops. And it's scary to Robin. She doesn't like it. I thought that was interesting that she views Cody as the captain both early on in season two or actually mid to end season two. And then also in season 15, she also refers to Cody as the captain. Also, Mary says the investigation was something Cody thought he would never have to deal with. But Cody knows the laws, and he knew technically it's against the law, and he knows that he's flaunting something that's against the law on TV. So obviously, even though the policy isn't to bring charges for polygamy unless other crimes are being committed, the law still has to investigate, or they would look irresponsible for not looking into something obviously illegal being paraded on TV, right in front of their faces for the world to see. So I'm sure Cody understood what would happen if he went public. And he probably also understood the policy would not be to break up his family or prosecute formally unless there were other crimes being committed. Cody just wanted to bring attention to this to get it decriminalized, and he did. And then he refused to move back to Utah when Christine wanted to. Cody is frantically running around like a chicken with its head cut off looking for his shoes. Janelle says they were running late and there had been two or three days of big snow, so they knew they needed to get up to the cabin before dark because they knew that everything would be snowy and icy and only one of their vehicles is equipped to make it into the cabin. Christine says it all needs to be done in the daylight so they can all stay safe. She says they are taking a real tree to the cabin and they show Cody securing the tree to the roof of a van. Christine has a fake tree, but she thinks it'll be a slap in the face to the whole cabin theme to take a fake tree. Robin says she thinks not single one of them takes the whole entire situation on their shoulders. Christine adds, nor do they want to. Robin says Cody has 16 lives of children on his shoulders and he has four wives on his shoulders and he's going, I got to make sure they're good. I got to make sure they're okay. Mary says she thinks that's why it's so hard for Cody because he always will take control of the situation and do whatever he can to fix it. And this is not a situation that he can just go control. And that's really hard for him. Hunter says it's kind of sad that they plan to leave at 1030 and they won't leave till one o'clock. And Cody asks Hunter snarkily if he would organize this for them next time, very cynically. Cody explains that they finally leave at 2 o'clock, so it's one hour after Hunter predicted, and they have three hours till it's dark, and there was a storm coming. Janelle was worried about her kids and how they will get them all to the cabin before it's dark. Janelle says it's not very safe because they know that everything would be snowy and icy, and you can only take the two-wheel drive cars into a certain point. They have a parking lot, 
And beyond that point, you have to have a high clearance four-wheel drive or a snowmobile. Janelle explains the roads are really icy and there really isn't even a road. It's basically a ski slope. Cody says, Janelle says it's a Snowden Pass and Cody says the two-wheel drives couldn't even make it up the hill. So they took them back to the base and Cody is going to go back and help the wives load all of the stuff into the Suburban to bring the rest of the family and all of the stuff and all of the cars to the cabin. Christine says they had to use the one SUV to transport everything in multiple trips, however many it took. Cody says it was getting close to dark and they were running out of time. And the cabin is full to the brim of people and stuff. Janelle says this is just making her nuts. And she tells Maddie, come on, to help her. Janelle explains they still had stuff to get, but at least they had the kids where they knew they were safe and warm. Christine says... The cabin was beautiful and it was really, really pretty. And Cody says it wasn't big enough. Mary says it was for a normal sized family and it would have been plenty big. There was a lot of space in the cabin. Have a lot more people than the space holds and a lot more stuff. The kids help Cody unload the loose stuff filling the Suburban. It's icy and slippery. Mariah almost falls herself. Janelle says when it gets dark in the mountains, it's really dark. There's not even a streetlight. They have their headlights and what you can see, and that's it. And the roads were icy and snowy, and it was really cold. Cody says he doesn't know what to do, and he doesn't know how to deal with it. So he just has to do whatever he can to protect his family the best that he can. And he has to make decisions that are very tough and that a lot of people don't want to hear. He just has to do the best that he can do with what he has to do. And he sighs. Cody says they're actually trying to get the snowmobiles and the guy who has been holding them for them, the rental rep, has been there all day waiting for them and it's dark now. So Cody needs the adults who are driving snowmobiles to go right now and go get them since the guy is freezing to death. He's been waiting all day. Cody says they got the kids delivered to the cabin and outside it was pitch black. They had to go to get the snowmobiles because they needed them for the next day. Janelle stayed with the kids. She wanted to make sure they were fed and warm. Robin says they had to leave an adult behind. Janelle says, bless his heart, Logan went to go get her snowmobile. And Logan is bundled up and he tells cameras, it's minus seven out. Cody explains the managers at the cabin dropped the Browns off at the landing area for the snowmobiles. And they met Adam, who briefs them on the snowmobiles. And he tells them to remember they are riding on snow and ice out there and to give each other a good distance. Janelle says the roads are bad and the trails are bad and she's hoping they're okay. Mary says they just had to take some precautions to make sure that they were safe and careful with the snowmobiles. Cody says the truth of the matter is that if you go to your right, you live. And if you go to your left, you freeze to death. They finally got the snowmobiles to the cabin and Mary says everybody was safe and everybody was warm. Everyone is sitting around and Cody tells the boys it's time to get the tree. They got the tree inside. Everyone decorated it together as a family. It was fun, Robin says. Mary agrees. Mary says they still did have the investigation kind of weighing on their heads. It was just kind of in the back of their minds. The police department did turn over all of their findings to the county attorney, Cody says. And you ask yourself, what can I do rather than risk having my family taken away from me? or me taken away from my family. As they show scenes of Cody with his family in the cabin and the tree being decorated, and they show a pensive Cody seated in an armchair as they play dramatic music behind it. Cody asks, what are they gonna do? What are they gonna do? 
He says, we don't know. Robin sighs and she starts looking up like she will cry. Cody says, historically, when a family is, and he starts acting like it's hard to speak, like he's on the verge of crying, he starts sniffling, he starts and pauses over his words. He says, historically, when a family is investigated or prosecuted for polygamy, they break up the family. So they have decided that they are going to move out of the state. They've only told the four oldest kids. So that makes this Christmas kind of an exceptional time for them. Cody puts the angel topper on the tree. It lights up and Cody says he thinks that's perfect and it changes colors. It's beautiful and everyone looks and claps. Robin thought, you know what? Nobody can take Christmas away from you. As the episode ends with the family smiling at the tree and admiring it, they didn't need to move because of this threat at all. The AG told them they will not charge them unless there were additional crimes other than polygamy being committed. But Cody wanted to frame it this way to justify the move and paint himself in a certain light as a victim. He also wanted to decriminalize polygamy and he knew they'd investigate and he knew the policy was to only bring charges for the lifestyle if there were other crimes like fraud or abuse, etc. So Cody moving wasn't because of the investigation. It was because of Cody, in my opinion. That does it for this episode. To my YouTube viewers, if you could please like and subscribe, I'd really appreciate it. Also, let me know your thoughts in the comments section. I'll see you next week for Book Club covering the second half of Chapter 4 on Robin and Cody. And also for the next episode of My Sister Wives Rewatch Season 2, Episode 8, Sister Wives and Holiday Crisis. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll see you soon. Bye.